You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fawcett to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Faye, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go, you can stand and shout your eureka, do whatever you'd like. You'll never forget the moment when lightning strikes. Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the heart-thumping, tingly, mic-drop moment that led you to becoming an artist. My guest today is David Lindsay Abair, a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, screenwriter, lyricist, and librettist. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his devastatingly beautiful play, Rabbit Hole. The Hollywood Reporter said about good people, another one of his devastatingly beautiful plays, it is that rare play that is both timeless and completely keyed into a specific moment in American life, bringing the same clear-eyed emotional observation that distinguished his Pulitzer Prize winner, Rabbit Hole, David Lindsay Abair has crafted another penetrating drama about deeply relatable issues. Some of his other brilliant plays include Funny Mirrors, Kimberly Akimbo, Wonder of the World, A Devil Inside, Ripcord, and on and on and on. And David also wrote the book for the musical High Fidelity and the book and lyrics for Shrek the Musical. And if that's not enough, he's also a very prolific screenwriter. Some of his film credits include Robots, Inkheart, Rise of the Guardians, Poltergeist, The Family Fang, and the film versions of Rabbit Hole and Shrek the Musical. And most recently, he's written just a plethora of monologues for the 24-hour plays, viral monologues, writing pieces for Rachel Dratch, Marsha Gay Harden, J. Smith Cameron, Joanna Day, Cynthia Nixon, Amy Garcia, Michael Urie, David Hyde Pierce, Mary Louise Burke, T.R. Knight, and Jake Gyllenhaal. I had to mention them all because they are a feast. They are absolutely spectacular, these viral monologues. And David is also the maestro of decorating Halloween houses. His home is called the most impressive Halloween house in Brooklyn. Google him and Halloween or go to his Twitter feed, Twitter feed and you'll see what I mean. Welcome, David. 
Oh my God. That is such a nice introduction. I have to say the thing I'm proudest of is the Halloween decorating. I had no idea that you would mention it. And by far on that list, that's the thing I'm proudest of. Thank you. Really? Out of your out of your repertoire of 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 work, it's the Halloween. It is pretty amazing. Well, it's also secret, and I haven't gotten any bad reviews for it, so that helps. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, well, let's let's. There's so much to talk about. Can we talk about your lightning strikes moment when you knew you had to be an artist. Well, this is the hardest question, and I know it's uh, the whole premise of your show. And when I, when you asked me to do it, I thought, well, good Lord, I don't really have the thing. Um, what I have, and I'm happy to describe, are more like yeah. three mini lightning strikes. Um, uh, the, f- the first one being when I was, you know, uh, eight or nine, my uncle took my sister... Um, and some cousins to see Annie, the tour, the touring production of Annie. I grew up in, in South Boston. And so Annie was playing at the Colonial Theater. Um, and, you know, I knew nothing about theater. My, my family is incredibly working class. Um, so there were no theater people in it other than this wonderful actor, uh, uncle of mine, who did some community theater. Um, and he brought us all to see Annie. And it was an amazing thing because there were their kids up there performing their hearts out in this gigantic, gorgeous theater. Um, so that was, you know, my first flash of, of wow, theater is amazing. I, I, that said, I never considered it uh, something that I could pursue. Um, I certainly didn't think of, of the writers of it in particular. It just seemed like this wonderful foreign thing that had nothing to do with me. But still, it made an impression. And that same uncle brought us to see the touring production of Peter Pan. And so there would be these theater events in Boston that I would go to um, that I loved. But again, I, you know, it was just a special thing. Um, and then later, I got a scholarship to Milton Academy, which is this very Tony private school out in the suburbs. And I was the poor kid from Southie that would get on the subway every day and go to this private school starting in seventh grade. Um, And in ninth grade, what happened at this school was um, every ninth grade did a ninth grade play. And our ninth grade play was actually a musical um, by Christopher Durang called A History of the American Film. And it's just this ridiculously funny, absurdist, of course, it's Chris Durang, wonderful musical that I was in with all of my fellow classmates. And I played a bunch of different parts in it uh, and just had the time of our lives. And so I loved being in theater and I loved that show in particular. And when that show was finished, a classmate said, you know what? We should do a 10th grade play, uh, which had not been done at the school. After ninth grade, you just get dumped into the whole school and everybody auditions for everything. And so this friend of mine said, you should write a 10th grade play because you're the funny one. And so that's how I became a playwright just because a friend said, you should do this. Again, it wasn't exactly a lightning moment because I didn't think, oh, now I will become a playwright. I just did this thing that I loved doing. Um, and then I wrote an 11th grade play and a 12th grade musical with one of my best friends. <laughs> and again, not really thinking that I would pursue it necessarily. Um, so that was the second lightning strike. I then went to Sarah Lawrence College primarily as an actor. I loved acting. Um, and just to fill up my theater program, I continued to take playwriting classes and I continued to write plays. Um, and after I got out of, uh, Sarah Lawrence, I worked for a couple years. I continued to write plays. Again, I'm so in denial about being a playwright. <laughs> um, 
uh, I met a, a fellow playwright named Stephen Belber. I had submitted a play of mine to a contest in South Carolina that I had won. And I met Stephen Belber there. And he said, do you know about the Juilliard program? And I said, no, tell me more. And he said, well, it's essentially a fellowship. It's a graduate program, but you don't have to pay anything. In fact, you get a little money to attend. And it's run by Marsha Norman, one of my idols, and Christopher Durang, who wrote that very first musical that I was in in ninth grade. So I applied to Juilliard and I got into Juilliard and, you know, they only let three or four playwrights a year. And maybe on the first class, uh, in the first class, Marsha and Chris were saying things like, well, as a playwright, you will encounter this and that. Or as a playwright, you may have an encounter with a director that will go like this. And I swear to God, it wasn't until that moment in that class where they were speaking to me as a playwright that I thought, oh, I I guess this playwriting thing might work out. So, I mean, that was the real moment, but I was in denial about it for so many years. And that I think just might be a byproduct of being a working class kid where, you know, I didn't know any playwrights. It didn't seem like a, a feasible occupation. And also as a working class kid, I just, you always have a plan B, which is even if you dare to dream about something impossible, like being a playwright or working on Broadway, for God's sakes, is like, well, that will never happen. So I better make sure that I have, you know, I can, I can type and work in an office should that happen. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. That's so extraordinary, you know, how I, I'm thinking of just in the 10th grade or how somebody just said to you, why don't you write it? And mm-hmm. you said, yeah, I'll do that. And I, I, I even love the story about how you, you got to the school, that it was a that there was a scholarship, right, that was given mm-hmm. away once every six years, and it was usually right. an athletic scholarship, and that the boys' club, the, the people who worked at the boys' club really championed you and got you. Yeah, I had no all. idea. Yes, I had no, well, I mean, luck plays a, you know, a, a huge role in my life. So that once every six years thing, um, you know, you had to be the exact right age on the year that this scholarship became available. I did not know that it was an athletic scholarship until many years after, like literally 30 years after I got that scholarship. The New York Times was doing a story about me. I think Good People was opening. So we went back to South Boston and I met with these women that worked at the Boys and Girls Club. And they said, gosh, I remember how contentious that staff meeting was. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, that was an athletic scholarship. And, you know, there is nothing athletic at all about me. And still, these two women put my name forward for an athletic scholarship. Ridiculous. And I got to Milton and I did the interview and I brought, you know, a stack of poems and some paintings I had. And Milton, God bless them, decided to let me in anyway 
despite the fact that it was an athletic scholarship. It also explained, you know, the third weekend when the phys ed teacher said, are you that kid from Southie? I said, yeah. You don't play hockey? I said, no, I don't really play any sports. <laughs> so what kid from Southie doesn't play hockey? And he seemed so angry because he, <laughs> I, again, 30 years later, I found out, oh, he thought he had this ringer coming in from South Boston to beef up his hockey team. Instead, this poet walked in the door. He was very disappointed. Can you talk about that 10th grade play that you wrote? What was it? Do you remember? <laughs> I remember. I remember very well. It was just terrible. I can tell you that. Oh. But no, nobody told me it was terrible. And we had the time of our lives. Um, one of the great things about Milton is they exposed me to amazing plays. Um, and one of them being uh, Tina Howe's play Museum. They had done, you know, the upperclassmen had done some production of Museum, which just is a ridiculous, absurdist play, which is wonderfully funny. And, you know, three people will come into the museum and they have a little scene and then they leave and then four more people come in. And it's not, it has sort of a plot, but not really. Anyway, my play is a complete ripoff of Museum. It was called Mario's House of Italian Cuisine. And it was set in a restaurant and had like 35 parts for all of my friends. And they would come in and they would do a little scene and sit at a table and then they would leave. I mean, it was very much like Museum. Not nearly as good, but uh, we, we just had a complete and utter blast. That's ex What gave you those tools, though, to know that, okay... I could do this. I can write dialogue. I could pick up a pet. I can, I could write a play. Oh, God what only knows. You? I mean, just, just, you know, I don't know. Someone asked me to do it. So I did it. It just seemed like, Oh, that'll be fun. By the way, that, that pretty much defines my entire career. Someone saying, do you want to do this thing that you've never done before? And I go, uh, okay, sure. Musical. <laughs> okay. I'll write a musical. I'll write a horror movie. I guess. Why not? You're asking me to do it. Um, so it started, yes, all the way back in 10th grade. Why don't you write a play? Okay. That's so I did it. I'm highly suggestible. <laughs> and, and can you talk about Juilliard and more about how that experience changed you being there and, and deciding, okay, I'll, I'll hang that playwright shingle on me now, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, that, that I, I'm going to embrace that. And you know, I think about how competitive is you, the program is and what, what it was. Um, well, wh what was it that you um, wrote for them to get in? Oh gosh. The play that I yeah. submitted, cause you have to submit a play was, yes. um, was one of my very first plays. It's called The Devil Inside, which was produced yeah. at Soho Rep. Um, uh, I actually was produced the summer before I got into Juilliard. So when I submitted it, it had no productions attached. But that play, Devil Inside, um, was really over the top and absurdist and was inspired by 19th century Russian novels that I had studied a lot at Sarah Lawrence. Um, and it's just a ridiculous play that is not surprisingly a little similar to a Christopher Durang play. <laughs> and so it was tonally very similar to Chris, who was a, a influence. And I found out later who had also been deeply influenced by 19th century Russian novels. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. So it seemed like a good match in terms of getting into Juilliard. But once I got into Juilliard, I mean, it's a very small program. As I said, they only mm -hmm. let in three or four writers a year and it's a two year program. So there are usually eight other writers in the room. Um, so you get amazing attention from Christopher Durang and Marsha Norman, who are two of the smartest people you could ever meet. And so 
what's great about the program is they focused on your voice as a playwright and they wanted to support you and encourage you and this and they wanted you to write the best version of whatever play you wanted to write and so they just gave us room and love and support and we wrote plays. So that was half the program. And then the other half of the program is they just would talk to us about what it means to be a playwright, just living the life of a playwright. How do you have a family and be a playwright? How do you get work and be a playwright? How do you deal with directors while being a playwright? All these things that Marsha Norman would later go on to call the dark arts. And so we, <laughs> so we would read our plays to each other and respond. And then we would have a dark arts session after that saying, what's on your mind this week? What has happened with you all that you want to talk about that we can uh, advise you about? So it was just the most amazing two years of my life. And while I was there, I wrote Fuddy Mears. That's where I wrote my play Fuddy Mears that was first produced actually um, at Juilliard before it went to Manhattan Theater Club. Um, and just, uh, I'm, I'm still in a writer's group that started after a bunch of us graduated from Juilliard and said, well, what do we do now? And my friend Daniel said, well, let's just, let's just do what we did at Juilliard, but we'll meet in each other's living rooms every two weeks um, and we'll just respond to each other's work. And that, you know, all these years later, that group still exists. It's changed and it's grown. Um, and one more full circle thing, um, Christopher Durang decided to retire uh, uh, five years ago. And I got the call saying, would you, would you like to take, take Christopher Durang's seat? And so I've been co-directing the program <laughs> for the past five years, first with Marsha Norman, who was, you know, my mentor and who I love so much. And just this year, Marsha retired, and I'm now co-teaching with Tanya Barfield, who's a wonderful playwright who also went through the Juilliard program and who has been in my writer's group for the past 20 odd years. And so now Tanya and I are sitting in Marsha and Chris's seats teaching. Oh, the full circle-ness is so delicious. Uh, what, what does that give you, teaching and young playwrights and people who are just entering the profession? Uh, I, I love everything about it. And I didn't know that I would. When they offered me the job, I thought, oh, gosh, how will this affect my writing? Will it take away from my own writing? And actually, the time load isn't that much. Um, but I find it completely inspiring, honestly. And it's, you know, without being corny about it, I left every class feeling like, oh, I want to go home and write my own play. Um, and so it's just thrilling to be in a room with eight exciting writers that are creating new stuff and um, have a fresh outlook on, outlook on the world and have their own voices and points of view. Um, it's, it's just amazing. It's also having to respond to the work uh, every class keeps my own craft sharp because, you know, I can't not respond uh, in a way without thinking, oh, this applies to my own work. And I have to remember, oh, right, how to, how to keep characters active and just basic craft stuff that is good to keep sharp in my own toolkit, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. And what I love is that here you are, the same playwright or the same writer who wrote Rabbit Hole and Shrek and good people, yeah. I think about <laughs> and funny mirrors that that they're all very different kinds of, but they all have people, or maybe non-people who I care about deeply, and 
I feel like I get inside of them. What is that process for you of, of when you have that blank page or the blank screen? Do you mind sharing what that's like for you when you approach a play or a Yeah, sure. I mean, it's changed over time, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I first started writing, it was just uh, following impulses, honestly, um, and and trying to get excited about my character and what their dilemma was and getting, getting inside their own heads, uh, getting inside their heads and trying to bring that stuff to life. Now I, uh, you know, because I'm older and I've learned a lot more about craft, I do try to think of things uh, ahead of time instead of just winging it. It's hard to write from the seat of your pants. And so I do try to think, okay, what is something um, that I'm worried about? Or what is something, um, gosh, how do I even talk about it? It's so hard to talk about writing. But how do I create a character that wants something desperately? And what happens if they don't get it? I mean, that's very basic playwriting, actually. Yeah. But it's it's something that uh, you have to remind yourself about. And so if I think, look, j- just to be specific, um, Good People was about a woman that was in a very disparate situation. I knew that I wanted to write about South Boston, which is where I'm from. I never had done that before. And I knew that I wanted to write about, to some extent, class in America, hopefully not in a didactic way. Um, But then I thought, okay, so this woman who is like so many people that I know from South Boston, um, this woman who is, you know, has a lot of my mom in her, (laughs) um, uh, what happens if this woman loses her job in the first scene? Okay, great. Not great, but uh, now I know what she wants. She needs to not get kicked out of her apartment, and she needs to feed her her daughter. Um, and so th- that becomes the journey of the play. How does this woman uh, pay her rent? It's so basic, but then once you have that seed, you can then make things more and more difficult for her and push things up against her and have her push back. Um, but you have to start with an idea that feels like that's stage-worthy, and that um, the, the stakes are great enough that people yes. will be invested and want to watch that story. And I think about yeah, the stakes there, and, and there's this incredible scene where uh, Frances McDormand's character, Maggie, right? Maggie mm-hmm. is, Maggie. is Maggie, yeah, yes, is talking about how it started with peanut brittle, how, how the, the, her demise per se, or how she kept losing because she ate peanut brittle to save Mm -hmm. money and she lost a tooth and she had to, in this sort of Sophie's choice kind of dilemma, um, not to be so dramatic, she had to choose between a car payment to get her to work on time or going to a dentist to fix an abscess tooth. And it's so heartbreaking, but you understand it in a very base way, in, in such a relatable way, you know, how she has to, she has to make this choice. And it's, it's devastating, you know, that you bring us there. You know? Oh, well, thanks. I mean, these are the people that I, that I know and love and, um, you know, a, a lot of, 
a lot of people in the country now more than ever are living on the precipice and, and living literally day to day. And the, the, the tiniest setback can set off a series of events that could lead to just terrible catastrophe for folks. And so, yeah, breaking a tooth, what am I going to do? I have to pay the dentist. If I pay the dentist, I can't make the car payment. If I can't make the car payment, I can't get to work. If I don't get to work, then I get kicked. Then I get fired from my job. If I get fired from my job, I can't pay my rent. If I can't pay my rent, I'm kicked out of my home. And then I'm homeless because I decided to bite on a piece of peanut brittle. Right. And that's like, that's so many people um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to write about them also not, not the kind of people you often see on stage. Yes. Um, and so I wanted to give a home to those folks on stage. And what's so extraordinary jumping to the, the 24 hour plays, the, the monologues you've written, uh, that they really cast this, um, this beautiful spotlight on what we're going through right now. You know, I'm thinking about, they're, they're all so extraordinarily powerful. I'm thinking about Marsha Gay Harden's One Normal Thing, and they have mm. these twists and turns, and I'm not going to give it away, but there's this one line that it was like a haiku or crystallizing so much of what we're going through right now is where she says, poor dad, the guy lives to be 83 years old, fights in two wars, only to be taken out by someone with a cough. All he's accomplished, only to die alone in some hospital room. And I, I actually had to re rewind several times because I just it just stopped me in my tracks, that monologue. And... and uh, it was well, thanks. That's, I mean, she did it so beautifully. Yeah, beautiful. um, so that's very kind. I mean, these 24-hour monologues have been yeah. so interesting to me. Uh, for, for the listeners who don't know, the 24-hour yes. plays generally are plays that are written overnight. And I've done a bunch of Broadway um, benefits. And, you know, a playwright uh, writes a play overnight and the actors show up in the morning and they memorize it. And it's mounted that night on Broadway. So with the monologues, very similarly, um, I'm assigned an actor or I hook up one of my friends and then I write a monologue overnight and they're sent, you know, they're sent the monologue around 9am or something and they have to memorize it and record it by that night. And it's online at like 6pm that night. Um, so what's interesting about this exercise for me, cause I've, I, I've never really written in real time. Um, you know, a lot of my plays, like I think back to my time in South Boston, or I think back to a time when I was terrified of losing my child or whatever it is. There's a lot of reflection and that's not what's happening with these 24 hour plays. I am writing about the world as it's happening and I've never done that. And so, you know, I've done, I think 12 of them now over the course of these many months. And for me to what I can just track my, my own little psychological journey through the pandemic by clicking on each of these monologues. And so one week I think, oh, this is just absurd. And so Rachel Dratch does a very funny monologue. And then, you know, three weeks later, I am terrified of what's going on. And, and you know, two weeks later, I am incredibly angry. And then you get Jay Smith, Jay Smith's Cameron, uh, Cameron's very angry monologue. And then with Marsha Gay's Harden, Harden's monologue, it's, you know, I've, been incredibly sad a lot of the time and terrified for people that I love. Um, and so anyway, each of those monologues are just a little window into 
what was David Lindsay Bear feeling this week? And hey, great, Cynthia Nixon, will you um, do that for me? And Michael Urie, will you do that for me? And it's been it's been a wonderful experience. And those actors are all just so wonderfully game and talented, and I owe them a great deal. And don't they give you a prompt uh, or of some kind? Right, they give you a that they give you some kind of inspiration. Yes, right? they, so, yes, they often do. Yeah, the night before they send you a little video saying, "Hi, I'm Michael Yuri, and I can film here in my apartment. And here's my dog. If you can work my dog into the monologue, and you know, oh, I've always wanted to fill in the blank. And so I've used a lot of those prompts because they can help when it's you know. 1 a.m. and you still haven't written anything. Um, but I haven't always used them, but often, often I have, yeah. And how, how are you getting through this time? Is, is this helping you, the writing the viral monologues? Is it been uh, helping you heal, not to sound so dramatic, or helping mm -hmm. you get through this moment of for sure. Crazy. Yes. Healing's not too dramatic a word. I feel healed yeah. by them. I mean, just <laughs> accomplishing something is a, is a huge thing. Just feeling like, oh, I've created something in the midst of this insanity. Yeah. Um, so just feeling like you've done something and put it out into the world, that's a great thing. Um, but, you know, it's weird being a writer, too, because we, we are, you know, among the rare breed of artists that can that can, in fact, continue to work during this time. Mm -hmm. um, and so my deadlines are still my deadlines and I'm doing what I would normally do. You know, the, the extra ingredient is, well, there's several extra ingredients. One is my children are around all the time. So, that, so that's, <laughs> that's new and wonderful most of the time. Um, <laughs> but then there's just the anxiety of the world that we live in that can be debilitating. And, you know, I know a, a lot of artists that are, are having trouble creating, even though they have nothing but time and space, um, their brain is occupied by how awful the world is. I mean, the pandemic and the racial strife and our crazy oh. president. And um, I, I, I sympathize and empathize with all of the people that are not having an easy time creating right now. Do you have a certain time or a chunk of time when when you have to be writing, or does it, or is it when you know, the muse comes, or not when the, but you know, is there a, like some people I know they have to start writing at six a.m. and they keep uh, office hours and they don't answer emails and they don't. What is your ritual? Well, I sure I know? definitely keep office hours. Um, I generally start at nine a.m. And I work until six. Um, and so, again, I think that's just <laughs> the working class mentality. It's like, this is your job. You go for these hours and you have a lunch at this time. And so uh, I'm very strict about it. I work all day, every day. You know, un unfortunately, a lot of that day is spent responding to emails and looking at Facebook a little too often. Um but I'm still at the desk and mostly doing my job. And, you know, I, I've, I'm, I do a lot of stuff with film and television, as you've mentioned. Um, and so there are always deadlines. I, I you know, um, the harder part is trying to squeeze in sometimes the theater stuff, which is, of course, much more where my heart is. And so I, you know, I try to put aside, okay, these two hours are for that new play. No matter what, you have to do those two hours in the play. Um, or Janine Tesori and I are working on a new musical. You yeah. have to finish that song before you, you know, work on that thing that you said you're going to do for HBO. So it's, it's I, balancing. 
I love that you're you're reunited with Julie. I mean, you get we I got to see a, a little bit of your well, not a little. I got to see some of your collaboration with one of the viral model twenty four hour monologues. Oh right, Jake the Jake Gyllenhaal song, which yeah. is just delightful, and I'll let people watch it. I don't even. I it's just so special and a Thank window you. into that a, a world that's really beautiful. Um, it's literally set at a window. And it's set out a window. And, then, and so you're back with Jeline, uh from your collaborator on Shrek, right? Um, yeah. So I know you can't tell tell us too much. Is there anything you're sure? Yeah, I, I can I can say a, a little bit. I just can't announce what it is because it hasn't been announced yet. But no, Janine and I uh, did Shrek together, um, and Shrek was. Uh, wonderful and really difficult for all kinds of reasons that you can imagine. Um, but the best part of Shrek was working with Janine. Um, and so I, I, afterwards I said, gosh, that was really hard. Um, let's, let's do this again, but maybe not work on something that's based on a giant movie that has, you know, several Hollywood producers involved and everybody walks into the theater with an opinion about it before they've sat down, whether the opinion is good or bad. Let's, let's it would be better if people had a clean slate like they do when I write a play. And Janine was like, yes, let's do something small. And how about one of your plays? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, it is, do you have an old play that maybe we could adapt and turn into a musical? And I was like, oh, I don't, me? She's like, how about this one? And so she, well, I mean, you know, uh, she pulled, I can't say which one it is. But anyway, we've adapted one of my older plays and have had a complete and utter blast. It's so wonderful working with her. I love her. I love her work. And the process has been so easy. Uh, you know, we just slopped around for as long as we needed to. And we didn't have to put it in front of anyone until we were ready to put it in front of people. Um, and so that show is supposed to be running right now, but obviously it's not because of the coronavirus. Um, but it will be going up next season. Um, <gasps> and, uh, um, we're very, very excited about it. You talk, I love her work too. I, I love Violet. I mean, that's just one of my favorite. Same. Oh, and Caroline or Chet. And, yeah, oh God. So what a duo you, what's the yin and yang of you? And do you work to get, I mean, now do you work separate? Well, now. How do you work also? Yeah, yeah. Um, the yin and yang. Well, I'll tell you, um, there's definitely a yin and yang. I <laughs> am much more, maybe it's already become apparent in this interview, but I am very much a structuralist. And so <laughs> I, I like an order to things and I like the math of story structure um, and song structure and all of that. Um, and Janine is just, just, wild in terms of structure and where she goes musically and the way her brain works. And so she has loosened me up in incredibly useful ways. And I put up the guardrails in a way that she says is very helpful to her. Um, and so it's worked out wonderfully. Um, the, generally the way we work is we'll, we'll pick a moment uh, in, in, in whatever the material is that we're going, we say, is this, is this where, is this a musical moment? And we talk about it and we talk about it. And then I go away and write the scene and then it, that goes into the song. And then I write the song, the lyric and, uh, whatever I think the lyric might be, I then will include with the document that I send to Janine, eight or nine pages of noodles, which are things that didn't make it into the song, but 
were just little impulses I had that I didn't follow through. And so Janine will go through the song. Maybe she'll like it as is. Generally, she'll say, I like this part, but this noodle down here, this little stanza, I think that's the hook, don't you? And what if we move that up here and this B section actually becomes the bridge? And I go, oh my God, that's so much better. And it's always better. And so then I go back and I rewrite it with that in mind and send it to her. And she says, this is so much better. Great, great, great. I was thinking about this for the C. And then the bridge, I'll say, I mean, Janine, that feels like three different songs. Can we just like boil it down to something simpler? And she'll go, you're absolutely right. How's this? And that's how it is. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth like that. So it's incredibly collaborative. There has... I don't think, maybe only once, have I ever sent a lyric that she said, great, here's the tune, uh, and then it was written. No, every, everything becomes a process. But it's, it's, a wonderf- it's wonderful. How is it different than writing a play, you know, at the process of writing a song, or, write, or you know, when you're collaborative like that for you, than writing a play? Well, you're sharing it. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the main thing. You're, yeah. you're making it better with another person. Yeah. Um, also, you know, I, I hope I, you know, I think I know how to write scenes now at this point. Um, um, but Janine, a song is just a, it's a totally different animal. And so it has a structure like a song and a character generally, generally starts one place and ends at a different place. So there's usually an event in a song or a revelation of some kind. So that's all true. But um but it can go to so many different places musically that Janine opens me up um, to, to things that I just didn't have access to before she came along. Um, so it's been really interesting to actually adapt a play of mine that I felt I knew so well to then crack it open and turn it into a completely different thing that breathes and walks and moves around in a completely different way through music and song. It's, it's been wonderful. I can't wait. Has it completely transformed how you view this piece of, how you view the play now? I know you can't say whether it yes is. Yes and no. I mean, I can't imagine. It's funny. It's hard. <laughs> it's a very specific play. I can't really imagine it as a play anymore. Ah. Um, like there, like, you know, it's, it's the shape of it is still the same and most of the characters are the same and what happens is the same. But now we get to hear their internal lives uh, in a way that, you know, was just subtext in the play. And so to give voice to their hearts like that, um, I, if I saw the play, I would miss the songs, I think. Oh, so wonderful how things evolve. Yeah, for sure. And I know it's hard to talk about writing and I, I just love your dialogue. And I think about how each of your characters has a life of their own and a very specific your point of view. I mean, they're they're very uniquely drawn. Is it hard to describe how you write dialogue or or some of the best ri- guidance you've gotten in your career about how to write dialogue, how to bring these people to life? <laughs> <laughs> or that's too hard. I understand. No, no. I, uh, uh, I guess it is hard. First of all, thank you. You're very generous <laughs> to say that. It's also not. The dialogue, it's not something I honestly think about um, because the task of writing is like characters need to say something. What are they going to say? Well, they want something. And so how would they go about 
asking for it? Well, it has to be specific to who they are, how, what is their relationship to the character that they're talking to? Um, what is their point of view? So the, the more I figure out who the character is, then their voice becomes clearer. And once their voice becomes clearer, how they talk and what they say just becomes inevitable, if that makes sense. Um, so I, uh, honestly, I, I also think it helps that I did so much acting early on that I tried to create characters that I would want to play as an actor. And so <laughs> I tried to write dialogue that I would want to say if I were an actor. So there aren't really very, there aren't small parts in any of my plays. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, everybody gets their moment. Cause that's, you know, when I was in ninth grade, all I wanted was my moment. I didn't need a huge part, but if it was, you know, if it had a little arc and I needed something, um, then that was something to play and that would be fun. Uh, and so the dialogue comes out of that. I mean, it also, sometimes I write with an actor in my head, not, not a lot, but Mary Louise Burke has been in nearly all of my yes. plays. So if I get in a jam dramatically in a scene, I'm like, oh God, how do I get out of this? I think, oh, well, what if Mary Louise Burke was playing this part? And then <laughs> it just comes. It's like, oh, of course, this is so much easier if I have Mary Louise in my head. Um, or with good people, like those mm -hmm. were not literally based on people that I knew, but I certainly knew the type of people they were. And People with, in South Boston speak in a very specific way uh, with a very specific kind of humor and sadness and need and desperation and passive aggressiveness, mom, um, <laughs> that made writing, <laughs> that made the dialogue very easy to write. So it's almost like they're talking to you. You let you and, and you give them voice or you listen. Uh, That's it. That's it. Is there a role that you you loved playing when you were acting? Would you go back to acting? Oh my god! I would if someone offered me part. I would love that. I have no interest in auditioning or anything. Right. Like the the pursuit of acting. Yeah. Um, for you, no, would you write a part for you and put yourself in it? No, there are so many better no. actors than I am. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Um, uh, on, you know, one of my favorite shows that I, in high school that it was um, a flea in her ear where I was the lead. I played twins. And so just the joy of playing twins and doing ridiculously fast costume changes backstage and entering on the, on the other side of the set two seconds later in a totally different costume as a different character and have the audience go, what, how the hell did that, that also, <laughs> it's a very, very funny play with revolving beds and just, I love a farce. Uh, yeah. That wasn't evident. I know Rabbit Hole doesn't have a lot of farcical elements, but <laughs> Funny Mirrors does, and yeah. a lot of them do. So um, I loved being Flea in Her Ear. I was also Friar Lawrence and Romeo and Juliet. And, you know. Oh, oh, is it true? I read that Funny Mirrors is going to be a movie. Is that right? So Good Lord, I, have I don't know, Gerald. Oh, okay. It's been in development for so long. Oh, forgive me. Okay. Uh, I mean, the director, David Petrarca, who directed the play, has been attached to it. And, you know, every few months I, you know, I hear of an update, but movies are so weird. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll get turned into a movie someday. And I, I must ask you about your Halloween house. Jeez, I've been waiting. That's what I most yes. want to talk about. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I, I read this about a yeah, description that's just too wonderful. There are skeletons climbing the turret, dead bodies and other creatures buried in the front yard, witches and jack-o'-lantern ghouls taking up 
all the room on the porch, creepy dolls, giant spider webs, and ridiculous handmade clown paintings. When night comes, video projections, uh, when night comes, video projections of ghosts and spirits appear in windows up above, and many other creatures come to animatronic life as well, with plenty of creepy noises to boot. Oh, my goodness. Tell me more. <laughs> I mean, you just told it all. What more do you need? To <laughs> well, how did this, how did this happen? And, and I heard, and I saw that Good Morning America was there. Right, they that, were. That, they just yeah, they appeared in my lawn here. one morning. Yes. So, so, so it's alive and well, even and this so year. So funny that you're. At, I mean, <laughs> I literally took it down this morning. I was racing with my hammer to get the skeletons off the side of the turret, thinking, "Oh crap! I got to do Gerald's podcast in twenty minutes. I got to finish this up." <sighs> so it's coming down as we speak. Um, <laughs> to answer how it all came to be, when we 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 live in Ditmas Park. Um, and when we moved, we got very lucky. We got this lovely corner house with a nice wraparound porch. But when we moved in, um, some neighbors down the block said, hey, we host this Halloween parade every year. And our kids are older now. Would you like to host it? <laughs> and we said, you know, suckers. We, we were like, okay, yes. Little did we know what we were getting into. At that time, it really was just a family parade where, you know, 10 or 12 families with their kids in costumes would walk to the end of the block. And so we hosted it, hosted that. Um, but when we did, I said to my wife, well, we should decorate a little bit if we're hosting a Halloween parade. So I got, you know, three animatronics and some orange lights and that was the extent of it. And then the next year um, I thought, well, we should get a few more animatronics because we can't just have three. Look at this big porch. We should fill it up a little bit. So I then got, you know, three spooky clowns and a couple witches to add the three that we had. <laughs> and by the way, we need many more lights, of course. Uh, cut to eight or nine years later, now I have 60 animatronics. Um, the parade, <laughs> the parade is no longer just the 12 families. Over a thousand people show up. We have a permit to block off the street. We're giving out brownies and cupcakes and popcorn. And it's a huge neighborhood event that we love. The parade itself was canceled this year because of Corona. Um, but the decorations, I still put them out. I almost didn't this year because I thought, oh God, I don't want people gathering on the lawn and becoming a hot spot and ending up in the New York Post. Um, but then enough neighbors said, oh my God, please, uh, when the kids are begging me to know when the decorations are going up, I have to get them out of the house. So I thought, oh crap, I guess I have to put up these decorations. So I did. And I put signage saying, please wear your masks and stay six feet apart. And people obeyed all the rules. Very and nice. this was the first year that we got cards and notes in the mailbox thanking us for the decorations. It seemed like because it's such a miserable year, it meant more to everyone this year than it had in the past. And I'm so glad that we did it. Gosh, how, do you try to top it every year? I mean, my goodness. And the creativity and ingenuity of, of this is astounding. Uh, well, there's a lot of maintenance involved because <laughs> these animatronics are wonderful, but not very well made. And so <laughs> I'm constantly swapping them out, trying to repair them. So there are always new ones in the mix. Um, but I, 
I, I don't, I shouldn't, my wife may listen to this podcast, so I'll say, no, I will not top myself. <laughs> I think she's, she's done. It is literally the entire wraparound porch and it has moved up to the second floor and we're putting projections in windows. We can't really do any more without my getting a divorce. So <laughs> I will not, I'm not going to top myself. We're just status quo now. And what is it like for your kids? My God, it's like living in the North Pole. <laughs> you know, the census workshop. <laughs> uh, they they love it. They don't feel inclined to help me set any of it up. Um, uh, my youngest was a little scared of a few of the animatronics um, early on, but he's twelve now, so he's fine with all of it. So no one's uh, no one's scared except for the occasional. Uh, con ed guy who does, you know, everything is stored in the basement. And I sometimes forget to warn people that go down in the basement. Oh, by the way, <laughs> there are 60 zombies and creepy clowns down there. So I will startle a con ed person every once in a while. But the kids, the kids, the kids love it. Were you a Halloween person as a kid? I mean, as much as any kid was, um, yeah, I, I, I loved it. And I loved scary movies. Um, so, yeah, I, I loved it. Oh, gosh. Well, I can't wait for next year to see it. <laughs> well, it'll be here. It'll be here. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, David. I cannot thank you enough for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Gerald. This has been terrific. It's been terrific. Well, have a wonderful day and stay safe. Thank you so much. Every day when lightning strikes the moment you know. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore, and the talent was booked by Anna Strauss. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.